It was mentioned this morning by some that there was a little noise on the television program, and it was kind of interesting how, how that uh, was mentioned. Everybody was very kind about it. They pointed it out, and Tom and Jerry made sure that everybody knew they had nothing to do with it. It was not a, not a Tom and Jerry production uh, there. It was a partial Tom and Jerry production, but the parts where the noise uh, entered the picture was uh, those parts were done at GBN. They were the taped segments, and I didn't watch all the program this morning, but uh, they said Tom Holland even commented on the noise while he was talking, so it had to be occurring while he was actually taping the segment. So uh, that took place down at GBN back when those segments were taped, I guess, but everyone was quite kind and said it was not uh, distracting, just noticeable, and Tom and Jerry, I thought, what I mentioned, had nothing to do with it. Uh, they, uh, their names are not on the credits yet, but they will be very soon. Uh, but it will not say, as we said, a Tom and Jerry production, because that uh, tends to kind of destroy credibility a little bit when you do that. <laughs> so it'll be uh, mentioned uh, in a different way. But uh, I do want to thank these men. On Friday afternoon, we had Barry Gilreath Jr. come over from Florence. He was quite gracious in doing that. And, we taped uh, our first two-man uh, interview segment, which is a little different when you're doing lighting and so forth and camera work. And so uh, that was the first time that these guys had been involved in doing an interview over here. And they did a great job and uh, appreciated that and others, Tommy and uh, Brian. We've had so many who are involved in doing, uh, doing so well uh, as we make this transition. And we are kind of under the gun now. Adam Vaughn is moving to Memphis on Thursday, and he'll be editing the program from there, but we have to make sure we've got everything set up in both places to transfer files of the program back and forth, get the closed captioning done and all that. We're moving toward that, and uh, things are going well. God has blessed us uh, tremendously, and I really appreciate uh, these men for giving their time, uh, their valuable time, uh, and their talents uh, to do this work. I compliment you genuinely and sincerely. I mean it. I truly do. And that's the way a compliment should be given, isn't it? Genuinely and sincerely, because otherwise it's a lie, isn't it? And we're going to talk about compliments this morning, as a matter of fact, uh, and the importance of compliments, but especially uh, some very important compliments that we are going to study very briefly from Scripture. We do appreciate compliments that are genuinely given and sincerely given, and there's nothing wrong with uh, appreciating those things. Mark Twain said he could live for two months on one good compliment. <laughs> and so uh, people do appreciate uh, compliments if they're genuine and if they are sincere. But this morning, we're going to study the compliments of Jesus. I want us to just simply look at a few of the compliments that Jesus paid to individuals in Scripture and glean some lessons from those compliments, some application that we can make from those compliments. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 8, you'll find the first of the compliments that we are going to look at this morning, and it involves a centurion. You remember that as the scripture says in verse 5, beginning of Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, 
but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And then he went on to say, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There in those last two verses, he's talking about those who would come to sit down in the eternal phase of the kingdom. In heaven, ultimately, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, that is, those Jews to whom he came initially, who for the most part rejected him, would be cast out because they did not exhibit the kind of faith that this centurion, who did not have all of the advantages that those Jews had had, he exhibited that great faith. He had that kind of faith in the words of Jesus. Let me ask you, what kind of faith do we have this morning in this word? Because that's what we have here, the words of Jesus. Oh, I know that you have probably red letter uh, editions that indeed contain the words of Jesus in red. But when I say we have the words of Jesus, I mean not only those that are in red letters. I mean all of the New Testament, the last will and testament of Jesus that has been authorized by him, that has been given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and recorded for us on the pages of Holy Writ, how much faith do we exhibit in that book? How much faith do we have in the word, words of Christ? Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will by no means pass away, Matthew 24, 35. How do we exhibit that faith? By the kind of action that the centurion exhibited on this occasion. To have the kind of faith that says you don't need to come, just speak the word. And I know that my servant will be healed. That's faith indeed. Faith, no doubt, based upon the testimony that he had heard, the things that he had heard about, and the miracles that were being done, the attestation of the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be, produced in him a faith that prompted him to say something that evoked from the Master himself a compliment that we would certainly love to hear from the Lord today if he were among us, wouldn't we? Would he compliment us today as he complimented the centurion? He would if indeed we will build a faith equal to or surpassing even that of this centurion. And how do we do it? We build that faith by feeding. We build that faith by feeding upon the word of God. Because Romans ten seventeen, a very familiar text to us, still reminds us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you want the kind of faith that Jesus would compliment as he did that of the centurion on this occasion, it's not a faith that comes by placing a Bible under your pillow every night, is it? It's not the kind of faith that, has, that comes from having a Bible on the coffee table or one in every room of your house. It is a faith that comes by what? Feeding upon the word of God and realizing that as we love this word supremely and as we feed upon it regularly, then indeed we will have the kind of faith that Jesus would be able to compliment if he were among us. But let's look at another of the compliments of Jesus as we turn over now to Matthew chapter 11 and read verses 
7 through 11 of this chapter. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What do you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. What a compliment. But then he adds, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What a compliment. Was it a backhanded compliment, as we sometimes say? In other words, did he compliment him and then put him down? Oh, no, no, no. What he did was he complimented him highly. Of those born of women, none greater than John the Baptist, and yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven. What is that kingdom of heaven? It is the church, the kingdom that was imminent at the time Jesus spoke these words. That church that would come in the lifetime of some of those standing with him, as he said, it was recorded in Mark 9.1. That kingdom that began on Pentecost Day, following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, that kingdom, the least in that kingdom, will be greater than John, as great as John was? How so? Because John was never in the kingdom. He was the forerunner of it. He prepared the way for the king and he did his job beautifully, and he evoked a compliment of the very highest nature from the Son of God himself. And yet, what we're reminded of here is that if you're a member of the Lord's church today, you're greater than John the Baptist in one sense, because he never lived long enough to enjoy being a citizen in the greatest kingdom, the greatest institution that has ever been or ever shall be established the kingdom of God here on earth, the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What a privilege. What an honor. Would he compliment you, the Lord that is, if he were here today for being not only in that kingdom today, but being an active part of that kingdom? Or would he have to say to some here today, why have you not availed yourself of the opportunity to be a part of that which is the greatest kingdom that has ever been or ever shall be established. Why would you not want to be a part of that kingdom, the church, added thereto by the Lord himself upon belief in Christ, repentance of your sins, confession of Jesus as the Christ, and burial and baptism for the remission of sins. To do those things will put you into the kingdom about which Jesus spoke as he referred to John and said, the least in that kingdom is greater than he because John never had the privilege of being in that kingdom. The point is obvious, isn't it? It says something very, very significant about the kingdom itself and its value and its preciousness, doesn't it? What a compliment. Not a greater than John has arisen. And yet, the least in the kingdom is greater than he. And what was John's attitude? as he did his work and never entered that kingdom because he died before it came into existence. What was his attitude? His attitude was that he was not worthy to, to latch at the sandals of 
the one who was to come after him. He must what? He said on one occasion, increase, but I must what? Decrease. What a genuine humility he exhibited. What great faith, what a pure understanding of his role and his work. He was the forerunner, and he gave Christ the preeminence and never sought to take it for himself. Never resented for one moment that he was but the forerunner of the one who would come, the very Lamb of God himself. He had a work to do. He knew what it was. He did it well. He did it humbly. And then he decreased. And he died for his conviction as he told one of the Herods concerning his wife, you have no right to have her. And it cost him his head. Would Jesus compliment us today for doing whatever we can in the kingdom for recognizing that all members of the body are not the same member and that we have different talents and different responsibilities that we can carry out, different roles, and that we don't all have to be the head, we don't all have to be the arms, we don't all have to be the feet. We all do what we can with the talents God has given us, seeking to increase those talents as we use the ones God has given us with the assurance that he will increase them if we'll use what we have and we use them humbly, and we use them harmoniously, and we use them to the greater good of the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, we have that very situation right here, I believe, with so many who are doing whatever it takes and whatever they can, humbly, quietly, not seeking recognition except to assure themselves by their faithful labors that their names are written in the book of life, whether they are ever recognized here on this side of eternity or not. What an attitude John exhibited and what a compliment Jesus paid him. But now go further with me in Matthew to Matthew chapter 15 to see another of the compliments of Jesus to the Syrophoenician woman, again for great faith. And Mark also records this in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. We'll look at Matthew's account, beginning in verse 21 of Matthew 15. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. Initially, he didn't respond at all. Then his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His omission initially to the Jews, in other words. She came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She was persistent, demonstrating her faith and her perseverance. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And he was not being uh, unkind and using the term little dogs. That was not, a, uh, that was not the connotation at that time of, that, of what he had to say. And she said, True, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What an attitude of persistence here and perseverance. And what an argument she's seeking to put forth. 
She is not going to be dissuaded, it seems. And how does the Lord respond now? Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Again, an example of humility, an example of persistence, an expression of a willingness to take the crumbs, as it were. And faith and humility are seen in this woman, as we have talked about it also with John the baptizer. It also tells us that in our prayers today, and there's an application that can be made here, and we're told that elsewhere in Scripture, that we are. Remember the importunate widow who kept coming to the judge and seeking relief, and he kept trying to put her off, and she just kept coming and kept coming? What lesson did the Lord teach from that? Persistence. And the application was in our prayers to God. We should pray with great faith and with great confidence that God will answer those prayers according to His will. We may not always and we do not always understand why certain things happen and why we don't necessarily receive what we pray for, either immediately or even ultimately. But we pray in faith and we live in faith and we look for the providence of God and we look for the good that can come even from the adversity because we understand that God has the whole picture and that ultimately, ultimately, all things will work for our good if we truly love the Lord and express that love by the kind of faith that the Syrophoenician woman exhibited here. But now let's go to Mark chapter 12. And in Mark chapter 12, and also in Luke 21, this account is recorded. In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to him and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. What a compliment. What a compliment. Many who were rich had cast much into the treasury. She cast in two mites. A minuscule, a minuscule amount in terms of how we would compare it today. And yet, Jesus said, she gave more than all because she gave all. How would Jesus view our giving today? And not just in terms of our money, though this is a monetary matter here. And the Lord deals quite a bit with money matters in his teaching in the New Testament. But how would he... How would he compliment our giving of our time? How would he compliment our giving of our talent as well as the giving of our means? I can tell you about the giving of, of a great many people, though I don't know exact amounts, but I know what the contribution is every week and what it averages, and I know the size of this congregation, and I know based upon that size and based upon that average contribution, we have those who understand what it means to give 
as the Lord taught us to give. And you are appreciated for that. And the work of the Lord is able to go forward in a very fine way because of your liberality. And you're to be commended for that. But all of us need to at all times examine ourselves to make sure that we are truly giving not only of our means but of ourselves as the Lord would have us give in order to compliment us if he were here today as he did this woman. I'll never forget what the late B.B. James, years ago in Memphis when I was a student at the School of Preaching and working with the Oak Acres Church, he came and held a meeting, and I think I've mentioned this statement before, but it's stuck with me for years and years. He said, it's not a question of how much of my time and my talent and my money I can give to the Lord. It's a question of how much of the Lord's time and the Lord's talent and the Lord's money I can afford to keep for myself. I think that's a great statement about stewardship because it reminds us that it all belongs to him. And I've been blessed to be able to use it during my brief time here on this earth. And I need to constantly examine myself as to how I'm making use of what God truly owns. This widow was a beautiful example. What about John chapter 1? In John chapter 1, there's a man named Nathaniel who was complimented by Jesus in verse 47 of that chapter. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. You ever thought about how high a compliment that is? And how significant that compliment is? You'll think about it more if you stop for a moment to contemplate how much deceit there is in this world in which we live today. And how much hypocrisy there is in this world in which we live today. We are surrounded by deceit and hypocrisy in the world in which we live today. And so when Jesus saw a man coming to him and said, Look, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, there is no deceit, there is no hypocrisy... He is, life is an open book, he's genuine, he's sincere, and honesty and sincerity are always commended by the Lord. And therefore we should make sure that we are honest, that we are sincere, and thus would be commended by the Lord and complimented by him if he were here among us today. And then one final example of the compliment of Jesus, with which you are quite familiar, I'm sure. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42 of Luke 10. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Oh, how many lessons can we glean from this account. What a compliment. And what a mild rebuke here is seen of Martha. And I call it a, a mild rebuke. 
because obviously Martha was a good woman. Martha was a good woman, and Martha wanted everything to be just right. She was a good woman, and she wanted to be the perfect hostess. She wanted to make sure that everything was just right for the Lord's visit to her house. And because she was so concerned about that, she thought Mary needed to be helping her prepare these things for the Lord. And she felt so confident about it, so sure of herself about this matter, that she actually tried to enlist the help of the Lord uh, himself to get it done. Because she said, do you not care? Do you not care that Mary is not helping me? Tell her to help me. Now, I would imagine that Martha, because she was confident enough to approach the Lord that way, felt that the Lord was going to say, Martha, you're exactly right. Mary, get up from here. Get in there and help your sister. <laughs> but instead he said, Martha, Martha. And that's why I call it a mild rebuke, because you can almost hear it in his, in the way it's recorded, can't you? Martha, Martha, Martha. <laughs> you know, Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things. And I think there's an example here of, of a good approach to something that you need to deal with that's not going to go over potentially too well. But you approach it in a way to make it acceptable while not compromising what you need to say at all. The Lord never compromised, did he? But the Lord was compassionate. And the Lord didn't just jump down her throat, as we use the expression. But he did make some correction that she needed to make. Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part. Now notice this, which will not be taken away from her. That meal was going to come and go. That visit of the Lord was going to come and go. And yes, there might be some pleasant memories created from that experience as we create present mem pleasant memories when we're with family, when we have gatherings and so forth, uh, meals together here at the building, etc. All of that is good. All of that is fine. But we cannot lose sight of what? The good part. And prioritize. That's what we have to do. And on this occasion, Mary was complimented for putting the Lord before housekeeping. And housekeeping is important. And women are advised in Scripture, they're admonished, they're taught, they're commanded to be keepers at home, meaning they are to, to make sure that they fulfill their responsibilities at home. That's important, but the words of the Lord are more important. And the question we need to ask is, do we always choose the, quote, good part? And do we always make sure that our priorities are where they need to be? All sorts of application to be made in that regard, in terms of our attendance, in terms of our use of our talents, in terms of how we allocate our funds. All of it applies, doesn't it? Are we choosing the good part? Are we making sure? That, that one thing is top priority and that everything else pales in comparison to that. Jesus says that those who obey are wise. You remember the last part of the Sermon on the Mount? Those who obey, obey are wise. Building our houses upon 
the rock foundation and not that shifting sand. And if we build our houses upon the rock, when the rains come, the floods come, then our houses will stand. And that would be equivalent to saying that when the Lord comes again, because our houses are standing firm upon that one foundation, the Christ, we'll hear the greatest compliment that the Lord will ever give. And that is, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's the greatest compliment. And it's one we can all receive. Isn't that exciting? It's a compliment we can all anticipate. We can anticipate that. If what? If we'll live now so as to know that he would complement our lives now. Because if our lives do not reflect the kind of lives that we've looked at from these examples, and the compliments could not be given to us now that were given to these people, then the ultimate compliment, well done, will never come. But rather it will be, depart from me, I never knew you. Which do you want to hear? I think the answer to that is obvious. Surely, no one here wants to hear depart from me into eternal, everlasting destruction. Then why not make the change necessary now, this very morning, so that you know you'd be that one and among those who would be complimented ultimately with well done, good and faithful servant. How do I do that? How do I make that change? We've already mentioned it. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Believe that I am He, or die in your sins, Jesus said, as John 8, 24 records it. Repent of your sins, that is change where you are. That's repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5, Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, change, turn, you will perish. Depart from me. Perish eternally. And then you must sweeten your lips with the most significant confession that has ever been or ever shall be made before mankind. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then based upon that confession, you must be buried in baptism where not the water but the blood of Christ is applied to cleanse you from every sin and to allow you to rise, to walk in newness of life and to be in a position that John the Baptist never enjoyed, a member of the kingdom, the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, added thereto by the Lord himself upon your obedience to the gospel of Christ. And as you live faithfully in that kingdom, you'll hear the ultimate compliment. There may be some here not living faithfully in the kingdom who have entered the kingdom and need to come home to the kingdom in order to know that you would then hear that ultimate compliment. If that's your need, we plead with you to come. Confess that you've sinned. If it's a public sin, Say, I have sinned. Pray with me. Pray for me. And we'll do just that to the God who will forgive. As we stand to sing, will you come? <laughs>